All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Anthony Costello, and this is the Equal Justice Podcast. The Equal Justice Podcast is a forum for all those who seek truth, value, tradition, and fight to defend uh, the foundations of a moral and just society. I am joined by Jacob Daniel, by Logan Zepieri, and Josh Mateka. Um, gentlemen, how are you tonight? Good. Good. All right. Uh, so what we want to talk about a little bit is why we started the Equal Justice Podcast. What, uh, when we say this is a forum for all those who seek truth, value tradition, and fight to defend the foundations of a moral and just society, what do we mean uh, with that tagline? So, uh, Jacob, let's start off with you, uh, which is our tradition. Um, what, uh, what is uh, the vision in your mind as we came together and conceived of this? for equal justice and, um, and how um, are we uh, applying this vision uh, to, to the church, both our local church and hopefully uh, the, the sort of the global church. Thanks, Tony. Uh, and as you mentioned, our vision, uh, the primary thing is to seek truth. And uh, my heart uh, through equal justice is to see how does uh, ideas impact the society? in terms of our public behavior and our engagement as human beings with each other. And I think uh, equal justice was a natural outcome or progression of our recent engagement, particularly uh, on the issue of critical race theory um, uh, with few establishments and institutions. And uh, that brought to light in terms of how important it is for us to have this, these discussions in light of and the origins and histories of these ideas um, so that we can actually uh, understand the times and be able to actually uh, have a strategy uh, which is effective in terms of securing uh, a glorious future, not just for us, but also for our future generation. Uh, so I think equal justice is much needed, uh, one that I would recommend to everyone uh, to subscribe to and so that we can be aware of what is it that we are facing uh, collectively as well as individually for the sake of our family, for the sake of our church, and at the end, for the sake of our uh, nation as well. Logan, um, you know, Jacob mentioned uh, uh, critical race theory, which, um, you know, a lot of uh, what we're trying to do here was spawned uh, over the summer of 2020. Uh, when uh, we saw the um, killing of George Floyd, uh, the response to that by one of our uh, favorite institutions, uh, Biola University, and um, we where this is where like we we kind of experienced quickly critical race theory go from theory to sort of full fledged concrete manifestation. Um, yeah. There were all kinds of protests, uh, many peaceful, some not so peaceful. And uh, you and I uh, got together and we started, and Josh was there as well, we started talking about uh, justice, right? The idea of justice and that uh, got us to the name equal justice. Can tell us a little bit about what your thinking was when we were seeing the kind of social justice move that we saw in summer 2020 and why we felt we needed to sort of respond in a, in a different sort of way. Yeah. Well, a few things. My journey with 
equal justice, view, uh, you know, or what became equal justice, really started with my work at the Chimes when I first started at Biola. I, which is the Biola um, magazine, right? Or the, the, newspaper. Yeah, the Chimes, this is a newspaper. Yeah, newspaper. Uh, the student newspaper is the Chimes. Right. And the first semester, I didn't do anything. You know, I, I, I got to the university, uh, I was at Talbot, I wanted to study philosophy. And I just started reading the opinion section, just kind of coming through it and realized that it seemed that the opinion section had by and large become kind of that uh, commonplace social justice kind of forum where um, every article was criticizing something that I would feel that a moderately conservative Christian would hold. These weren't necessarily radical views, but you know, if you celebrated Columbus Day, you're a racist, or if you celebrated Thanksgiving, you're racist. I mean, some things that I thought were, okay, so a little extreme. As time went on, I did join the publication and then ended up becoming the opinions editor. And it was in part trying to figure out where, I, try, I guess trying to get the, the temperature of the water, as some people would say, is why are people believing what they're believing? What are the arguments they're presenting? Trying to interact with the student body. And it wasn't until afterwards, and as you mentioned, the riots and the protests, and I just started thinking, you know, there's something about, I guess, the the, the fundamental Christian conservative side that I thought was so valuable. And I was trying to figure out, okay, but how do you communicate that? I mean, I took two years of graduate level training and there's no way you're going to get one class worth of material to the general audience, let alone two years. And it was when I started looking at social justice in this racial stuff and affirmative action and racial, you know, race preferences went right into it. I thought, you know, what? I think what it really comes down is do we treat people fundamentally equal or not? Not not tagging on their environmental um, forces, not tagging on personal development, not tagging on um, level of specialization, not tagging any of those things. Those in practical ways may be important, but fundamentally valuing other people over others. And that's where the equal justice came from. I was like, I feel like these are two competing views. Either you value people based off some external additional criteria, or you you know, value them fundamentally as equal. And I thought with the Christian view and the Imago Dei, what like Josh interviewed Dr. Moreland, just fit. And so I wanted something that could say, okay, you can have one or the other, but not both. You have equal justice or social justice. Yeah, and, and to that point, Logan, I, I think anytime that you add um, another term in front of justice, you're no longer making about justice, whether it's social justice or uh, 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 re redemptive justice, or it, it, it takes the focus off of the, the, the traditional symbolism that we have justice, which is the scales. And it's not to say that those other elements aren't important uh, elements to Christianity, uh, right? Like we, we need mercy and those things I think are, are included in our system. So for example, right, the judge has the ability to pardon uh, the, the person. And, and we have certain minimums, right, in the laws uh, that that we go by in certain guidelines, but um, at the end of the day, that was one of the things that we discussed, which is what is justice and what does it mean to um, uh, truly have an equal view of a person. So just to, just to cap on that and, and summarize everything for the audience, I think that is really um, what we're looking do, to do. We're looking to seek truth and um, do it in a way where we're uh, uh, providing a view of people as fundamentally equal yeah and, and that's yeah. you know as you said like this the law aspect you know we would say you know we believe equal application of law we believe equal before the law this blind justice kind of thing it's not about all these external criteria 
But that's why mm. we kept, you know, yeah. going back to Tony, we kept asking, mm. okay, but what, okay, why is that? Well, it seems like because we're all fundamentally humans, but more that we're fundamentally equal in our human nature that's connected with God and so on and so forth. It's not because you're a king or because you've been oppressed or because you've been this or that, that is, you know, conditionalized. It's, there's just a fundamental standing at which all people can approach the, the bench in a way, yeah. equal standing. And there is definitely a fight against it, isn't it? Uh, in the academia and even in society, like when we talk to people, I mean, it comes down to, uh, you can bring down all questions to this fundamental question, what does it mean to be human? And how do we uh, create policies in terms of that very definition that we have or answer that we have to that question? Or it could be, uh, how do we treat each other in light of the fact that we are equal, as you said, not because we, uh, actualize our potentialities of any sort. But the fact that we have potential um, underlying the fact that we are all made in the image of God. And right. losing that very one foundation uh, would lead us to a place where we don't want to go. You know, um, with concepts as large as justice or equality, uh, you know, and uh, Jacob, you have your PhD in the social sciences. Um, Logan's got his background in philosophy, uh, me in theology. Josh, you're in the business world now. Um, so, I mean, these are all, uh, I mean, justice applies to so many d different domains. Equality applies to so many different domains of human society and culture. One can take a philosophical, theological look at it, a legal perspective. So, I mean, one of the things that I think we've tried to do is uh, not just each one of us reading broadly on the topics and looking at it from different disciplines. Um, but the reason, one of the reasons for doing that is because we realize that um, this is quite a struggle just for the average pastor to sort of get through sort of what they have to deal with in just even their local congregation and with this mass amount of uh, information coming at them about various worldviews, new ideas and stuff. So one of the things that I, th I think was part of our vision was to pool our resources. Um, and most of us are dedicated, well, we're all dedicated to study and research and this kind of life of the mind. Uh, whether or not we do it well or not, that <laughs> will leave uh, to the audience. Only, only decide, I guess. Um, <laughs> But, you know, uh, pastors are strapped, right? Especially in this time of COVID, my goodness. They have so many different things to think about from finances, just keeping the doors open, their own individual work in spiritual direction. How does uh, the average pastor or church leader deal with everything that's out there? It's just not possible for one person to do. So I think part of the vision here as well was, again, to provide this resource where we could try and draw together some solid biblical ideas, a theological perspective on the theories or the philosophies of man that are out there today. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, uh, you know, pastors would be able to make it accessible uh, to pastors. But also, I think, Jacob, let me go back to you. We don't want it to be just sort of at a, and I hate to use this term, it's a little derogatory, but the popular level uh, but again, you know, we're not doing right now cutting edge research, but we're trying to get a sort of hit a pedagogical sweet spot, Yeah, you know, where people, you know, Logan's made this point too about how do we connect, you know, what we learn in the academy 
with what people really need boots on the ground when they're doing ministry evangelism and teaching, right? Hmm. You know, one of the things that you mentioned, uh, even with lockdown, there's one thing that we, we are not able to do is put ideas on, under lockdown. Uh, ideas are still having its consequences and its uh, outcome in our culture. And one of the strategies as we have adopted, and I think which is very much needed, is that we are not insulated. Uh, what we are doing is that we are reaching out to resource persons, you know, in, in the academia, in the churches, people who are, as you mentioned, on the ground, mm -hmm. uh, fighting for the truth and interviewing them and talking to them and engaging with them as well. So I think that strategy is really good. Uh, and that keeps a good balance because we can then decide as to, you know, people who come and come from different disciplines and bring their expertise on these issues. Uh, and that is necessary. We need to be able to actually engage at high level, um, uh, both in abstract as well as a theoretical level at the same time, be able to actualize and translate that into uh, how it looks like in our day to day life. Uh, so that we are not just uh, fighting uh, without a cause, uh, but for, for, for um, uh, goodness, truth, and beauty, as we would put it at the right. end of the day. Right. And just, if I can jump in just for a second. Um, what, Tony, what you said is with the pastors and the church leadership just being hit from all directions of, can you answer this question? Can you answer that question? You know, this person's having an issue, that organization having an issue. Do you, you know, Oh, there's a, you know, whatever, uh, some sort of horrific event that this person took place in that's connected to this organization. Are you going to announce them? You know, how is funding? You know, they're hitting from left and right. And, but, but this isn't a, an issue I think that is inherent within the pastoral position. If you're in any position of leadership, you'll see this. When I was working with, for example, business leaders and politicians, we brought them all in a room and said, okay, we, we all have our issues. Let's talk about all of the issues in your different cities, in different regions. And we tried to bring the foundations because it was political of, of the founding fathers. So we talked about equal application law. That was the thing. And we, what they noticed very quickly is that a lot of the issues they're having, for example, how do we craft certain tax policies? How do we craft, you know, do we, you know, poaching businesses or whatever, you know, don't want to run into that. How do you craft all these things? And we asked, well, are you trying to apply the law equally to everyone? Or are you trying to craft certain policies to make it unequal? And you could see, in you know the small group that we had about 12 or 15 of us these different politician business leaders thought oh my goodness there's like a criteria i could evaluate a multiplicity of policies in the same way i think that's what helpful helpful with this idea of equal justice because we, we have intuitions we have both intuitions i think of you know when newsom goes and has dinner with a group of people everyone no one really attacked newsom as a person they said oh so he gets to do that but i don't but a lot of the same people can then turn around and go oh can we just listen to dr fauci and what he's saying so we have an intuition of, you know, carving out authority given on specialized lines, but we also have an intuition of, okay, but we still want to all be traded equally. I think a lot of the conversation against CRT, I'm hoping that we can give, is this idea that, like, we can cut around all of the um, prudential cuttings of each question and ask, okay, but is this applying justice equally? Or are you trying to have justice under a different name for this person and a different name for this person and a different name for that person? So in a way, it's hoping to like reduce the number of research topics by saying, okay, we'll start one thing. Here, here's, here's where it can come out and you can have this huge theory and you know, how it's applied. Right. Yeah, and I think, I, yeah. That's right. good. I think 
what equal justice or what we desire or intend to do with equal justice is to look beyond the symptoms. Uh, look at uh, what is it that's causing uh, the symptoms that we are seeing in our culture that is causing more uh, division among people on various criteria. And one of the things that I really love about what we are doing here personally is the fact that we are, we are preserving and maintaining one thing that, that there's a fight against in our culture, which is uh, a platform for civil dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, but not just civil dialogue to build bridges so that we may cross to the other side, but the fact that we can actually uh, have authentic public square, a square where we are authentic about our ideas, where we stand on it, that we are not taking just neutral position on matters just for the sake of audience to decide on it. No, we, we want to lay down the, the ideas uh, on the platform and let truth prevail. Uh, and I think that is one thing we need to fight for and preserve because in our culture, that is exactly what we are getting away from. Yeah, that's good. I mean, Josh, um, Jacob uh, and Logan, and we talked about um, the justice aspect, the equality aspect uh, in our um, kind of in the motto that we devised that day. I think when we met up, I don't know how long ago now it was last uh, spring. I think it was in, well, maybe it was in the summer of last year, somewhere like that, uh, where we also uh, talked about valuing tradition. Um, you know, give me, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, when, when, of course, tradition can mean a lot of different things. I think everybody knows at this point that we're all uh, Protestant Christians. Um, but uh, yeah, leave, leaving cookies under the tree for Santa Claus tradition or what? Right. I mean, that's certainly one, although it's not one that I do in my family. But um, <laughs> okay, but we talked about, uh, you know, the tradition of the church, but also the tradition of, um, which is maybe, more contentious, uh, Western civilization, right? The great tradition sort of a classical canon of literature. Um, so, I mean, give us some insight or some thoughts on the value of tradition, especially, especially in 2021 in the mm. life of the church. Yeah, I think, well, I think tradition um, offers lessons already learned. So when you, when you don't have tradition, you have to, you repeat the same mistakes of history. Um, and, you know, the, the Bible verse that comes to mind is, um, uh, my people uh, perish because of lack of knowledge. Um, you know, people like to often um, point to um, different verses in the Bible that really bring out, uh, uh, what's the one with Paul where it talks about um, how, how knowledge pops up and, and creates arrogance. And it can lead to that, right? and the temptation that's associated with knowledge. But I think there's like over a hundred verses which speak of knowledge um, positively and, and in a beneficial way, um, where it's, it's good for the person to um, acquire knowledge and to use that for God's glory. And so I think to tie that into tradition and, and the use uh, 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 and the benefit of knowing tradition, um, when, you, when you understand not just how individual people have acted, but how civilizations and cultures have acted throughout history, it ties us to our ancestors. I mean, that, that's one of the, the great benefits of scripture itself. I mean, so much of scripture spends its time on the, on the ancient Israelites and on the history of those people. So we can um, almost have a reflection of even ourselves and our own sinfulness and, and the mistakes that we make every day. And so I just think tradition is incredibly important because um it allows us a wind a window in which we can um 
uh, where we don't have to, to do the heavy lifting and the heavy thinking. I mean, uh, you know, most of the history of the church, they, they've already done that, right, with theology. And, and, and uh, C.S. Lewis talks about how we can have chronological snobbery and, and just, uh, you know, say, well, we, we have the best and brightest ideas and we know more now because we have access to the most resources or what have you. And, uh, and, and at the end of the day, that, that's just ludicrous. It really is. There, there's so many great thinkers throughout history uh, who um, have already uh, done, who have already done a lot of work. And there's, and there's different work to still do. There's very, like, for example, um, I'm just a couple of topics coming to head are, uh, uh, you know, homosexuality being a very contentious subject and um, one which the church has, has not gone nearly into uh, as much depth in terms of discussions as they are now, right, in other areas. But, there's, but there are lots of things in building blocks which, uh, which have been built out. And so, uh, like the Trinity and, the, and Christology and all sorts of things, right, um, just, to, just in the context of the church, uh, let alone, um, you know, politics and conservatism and um, different values, which I think we hold. But um, all that to say, I think tradition really just brings um, value that our ancestors give and we can learn from that. Well, that's, that's very well said, Josh. And, um, I want to agree with everything, pretty much everything you said and add, you know, I was thinking, I mean, these, we have the, the two traditions that we have in view, um, both would relate to what you just said. One is the intellectual Mm -hmm. tradition of the West. Um, you know, I read a book called, um, Stoics, Epicureans, and Skeptics by R.W. Sharples, I think was the Oxford philosopher, philosopher, uh, historian of of philosophy. Mm -hmm. And when I read through the, you know, the works of, you know, or this commentary on the pre-Socratic and, and, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, it started off with some pre-Socratic stuff, but then it gets into the, um, you know, the Stoics and, um, and the uh, Epicureans, who, of course, certainly after Plato and Aristotle. But, um, you know, and you read a book like that, and you're like, man, it's all been thought before, hasn't it? <laughs> you know? Uh, so, uh, and, and that same for the church. Uh, it, you know, there is, when, when, when Solomon says that there's nothing new under the sun, there, you know, we, it strikes us immediately as, as true, both in one sense for what we see, at the macro level and also just what we experience in our personal lives. Right. Um, so that valuing of tradition and then, you know, it's something that Protestants have struggled with because we don't want to confuse tradition with revelation, mm-hmm. but um, Jacob and Logan, it seemed um, that this is also a very important time to kind of embrace the church's traditions because we seem so cut off from the past either if we go sort of the modernist route everything that came before us today was barbaric and unenlightened and pre-scientific those people just didn't know any better or if you go more sort of like the postmodernist route or the you know uh social justice route everything before us was evil and wicked and colonial and horrible and we got to redo the whole thing so how does the church maintain its traditions in light of both of those different kinds of attacks is what you know, I'm uh, going to go first. I'll just add this. Um, again, another symptom of our culture is that we are very much presentist, right? And a, a while ago, we were talking about losing all platforms for civil dialogue. 
uh, if you see, uh, let's tear down this monument now. Let's cancel this person now. There's no time for discussion. There's no time for engagement. So I think it's very symptomatic. And that's what we are doing with traditions as well. We're not taking time to engage in seeing where we are coming from. And I love what uh, Osgen is, uh, says, contrast is the mother of clarity. And one of the reasons why we would have a greater appreciation for traditions would be that we recognize, first of all, that we are at home with it. Uh, I, I always say uh, uh, when we question traditions is maybe we should be questioning other, whether we are far from home um, uh, it, it, philosophically, right? In terms of ideas and thoughts and have we disconnected ourselves so much that we, it looks complete foreign to us. So what I would say is that when it comes to, particularly with churches, and there is an attack on the whole idea of exclusivism, right? Uh, exclusive claims of Christian faith, for example. What I would tell uh, Christians in terms of appreciating their traditions even more is that not just seeing it in light of negative, uh, not because there are traditions that we need to be, uh, you know, think through and just we, we need to question things about. But at the same time, there is so much of positive that is there. And that would happen when we will be able to actually compare our Christian traditions in light of um, traditions of other worldviews and the outcome that it has brought about. And that is important and necessary, a discussion one should happen. And I would say people who actually question the very idea of exclusivism on the question that you are intolerant, I'll, I actually flip it over to them and I tell them that you are being intolerant by removing uh, distinctions between worldviews that are contradictory to each other, ideas that are contradictory to each other, and not giving people the freedom to choose for themselves. Uh, what is true and what is right and what is good. So this is what I will tell church, you know, we need to fight for our traditions, mm -hmm. good traditions, they are good. We need to preserve and maintain them. We need to be educating the future generation, something that I think we have uh, slightly failed in in the past. We've let the secular world dictate uh, and tell our kids uh, about the whole negative narrative about our traditions. Logan, did you want to also add to that? Yeah, I, I want to jump in a little bit on this one because I know, I remember, I don't know if uh, Jacob or Josh, I know I had concern. There's a little bit of, go, we were going back, I don't remember this, on how to formulate that tradition part. And part of it was, my concern was, okay, you know, you don't want to say tradition's bad. This is the same kind of dichotomy you've, you brought up at the beginning of this segment. But you also don't want to say, well, because it was said, we're just going to keep on saying it. Right, there's nothing's new under the sun, but some of the some of the things that have been said were bad, and some yeah, of the, the things that were said were. Roof. Is that the fiddler on the roof uh, reference? I, I don't know. I've seen it. Maybe it's just like tradition, one of those tradition, subliminal. Tradition. <laughs> where it says the guy is. I don't. I never read it, but it's about tradition. You know, why do we do this? Because uh, we've all we've always done it. You <laughs> know, we've done it. Well, and it's like you know, I was reading. Uh, well, uh, it was did come from. I was reading a while ago Chesterton, which. By the way, I'll slide in there. If it's written by Chester, it's, it's absolutely worth reading. Um, his book, What Was Wrong With the World? Or What Is Wrong With the World? And uh, there's an example he uses in his introduction, I believe. And it's cited by a bunch of people where he talks about uh, people walking down a road and then seeing a, a gate. He said, modern society has thought we just need to get rid of the gate. What modern society actually needs to be doing is asking, why was the gate there? And it doesn't, it could be there for a good reason. It could be there for a bad reason, but throwing out the gate because it's in your way is, is a really terrible thing to do. 
Yeah. And that's why I think valuing tradition is, was so important. And I think that's the language we kind of settled on was because we can look back and be like, okay, these people have gone through this before and they've come to certain conclusions. Some of them came to some very bizarre conclusions. Some of them came to some good conclusions. Some came to some bad conclusions. But you need to at least take the time to ask why did they come to that conclusion and not some other conclusion before you tear down that tradition. You know, this is, and so right. like for example, like how we develop laws, right? The, the super majority stuff that we do with the sixty. You know, and Chester and again hits on this. He's like, because you, you can't just democratize the present. Okay, whoever likes it today gets a vote, but we need to give the vote to the dead as well. They right. passed it. Now we need us the supermajority to also overthrow that extended democracy as well. Those who also participate in our system. And so I think that's why I think valuing tradition is so important. You don't have to agree with it. I'm not asking, we're not asking agree with tradition. We're, all, we're just saying we have to value, value the strife. You know, they thought they were just as right as you were. You know, it's not and that and when Chester talked about the democracy of of the dead, right? Those yes. he didn't mean that they they're actually ballots signed out, <laughs> signed by no. people. Yes, he didn't mean that's not. They might be voting today, but they weren't supposed to be. <laughs> that's I'm not kidding. what we're talking about. <laughs> oh, about yes. taking into account the perspectives of those who have gone yes. before us. <laughs> so, um, well, and I, you know, I'll, one example I think that uh, I think is worth mentioning of uh, not really understanding uh, tradition, both of the, in this case, both of the church and of American history was uh, when the illustrious um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I, I, I won't say anything bad about her personally beyond, say, you know, the, that, <laughs> was, um, you know, when she, I believe there's, um, you know, I think it's in the Capitol building, correct me if I'm wrong, but each state has two statues um, that are sort of representative of the state's, of the state's culture, its, its history, its legacy. And one of the statues uh, for Hawaii, the, the state of Hawaii, is that of um, uh, St. Uh, Damien of Molokai, um, who was one of the first missionaries to a leper colony on Molokai where these lepers and these are people with Hansen's disease where literally the, you know, the flesh would decay and everything were sent off there to die. And he went and he lived with them. And, um, you know, at one point he contracted uh, leprosy himself and died along with them. And um, I believe Ocasio-Cortez point was pointing to this statue one day last summer saying, this is the problem. She kind of made this 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 statement that it's this was the problem with with America is people like this pointing at Saint Damien probably because he was from Belgium right he was mm -hmm. uh, a, a white European and um, the auxiliary bishop of Los Angeles Robert Barron had a very very good response to that yeah. um, and I'll let people uh, we'll, we'll maybe post the link to it but so that it's that kind of like um, sort of disparaging of everything that's that's come before us and in that case it was both a disparaging of the church's tradition um and legacy and uh of america's tradition so um now the final um we've talked about the name equal justice quality justice we've talked about tr seeking truth which is our, our foremost goal um but uh you know and then a little bit now on tradition josh the other uh the way we ended 
the vision statement or the motto uh, was uh, to defend the foundations of moral and just society. Um, what does it mean to do to defend the foundations of a moral and just society? Simple question for you. Yeah. <laughs> you answer that in 15 seconds or less. <laughs> uh, hot seat. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, you could break down like every word of that, right? Um, is it to storm the Capitol? Is that what it is, Josh? <laughs> yeah. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, I, I think, I think it, we, what we're trying to get in mind is a moral and just society, right? That's, that's the aim. That's the telos, right? Um, and so to defend that is to have conversations um, about what we, using tradition and, and using reason, um, to reach that point. And, and I think if we can convey to um, the audience, to people that, um, you know, watch our, our, our channel, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's the podcast or what have you, um, about how to get there and, and, and not, not our ideas necessarily of how to get there, but of um, actually traditions views of different cultures who have lived previously and, and what societies have been formed um, through Christian Judeo values um, to to get to that moral and just place. That that's really the goal, and that's what we want to do is, is defend that. So, um, how we do that um, is going to be dependent upon um, a lot of things, but that's that's the, that's the main goal. Okay, um, this is what I would add to that is that particularly with equal justice and as the name suggests and our vision. One of the foundations that we are fighting and defending is the, the valuable gift of Judeo-Christian worldview or uh, the foundation of the intrinsic worth of individual. Uh, there is no other worldview that could offer us that very foundation, that the fact that we all are made in the image of God and therefore we treat everyone the same. Uh, we uphold justice for all people at all times in all things. Uh, and I think uh, with equal justice, that's the very foundation that we are trying to defend uh, particularly. Uh, but we need to understand that Christianity has, or Christ has offered um, unique foundation for us, a solid foundation to build our society upon. And as Christians, we are not called to run away from, uh, uh, from the command that we have to be the salt of the earth and light of the world. And I think we can, and we can defend these foundations starting at our home, starting with our children, starting with our building a family. Because I think that's the, the very fact that it starts at family. And as, as you wrote uh, the other day, uh, Tony, uh, about the importance of family and why it is, as, as the family falls, so does the nation, so does the church. And I think we need to be actually upholding and defending these foundations starting at home, but not being also silent about it in the public square. We need to be speaking about it. We need to be, we need to be writing about it. Uh, we need to be sharing it from the pulpit um, whenever and however it's possible. And uh, creating, as I said, an authentic public square where we come together and engage with each other. And that's what we need to be doing. Logan um to defend a moral the foundations of moral just society and, and jacob's jacob got us into uh the, you know how we defend it at the smallest level 
of culture, the family. Um, but there is this question of how do we defend things as Christians? We, you know, I mean, uh, you know, going back to the Capitol, and of course, um, I'm referencing the January 6th protest, mostly peaceful protest, right. that didn't end peaceful, though. No. Um, that, uh, I, I was going back and forth with my brother, and my brother was uh, bringing me back to the Chicago Bears uh, rivalry with the San Francisco 49ers in the 1980s. There was no way the Chicago Bears were going to run and gun, you know, do a passing game against the 49ers and win. They had to win but with defense. Otherwise, they weren't going to beat Joe Mantana and the 49ers. It's like, um, you know, as Christians, we can't play the game that the world plays, which the world and especially the left can go out and riot and rally and protest and they can just kind of get away with it, to be honest. I mean, um, it seemed like, and I don't want to say, I don't want to state it as a fact, but it seemed like there was some kind of attempt to defend some kind of traditional uh, conservative, uh, moral and just society on January 6th um, that didn't go so well. And you're not going to beat... Um, a potential enemy uh, trying to play that game, right? Yeah. Uh, you're not going to win that way. How though? Because we do feel the crunch, don't we? We do feel the crunch, the attacks on the fam, everything, you know, from the attacks on the family to institutions, uh, the ever encroaching sort of nature of the state in multiplicity of laws uh, the greater constraints on our personal freedoms and so on and so forth to include on our ability to gather and worship. But how do, do we, how do we defend? How do, do we defend? We cannot sort of grasp for these worldly weapons, can we? No, no. And I think to, to answer that question, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a few things that are, that are connected. First one is that it does need to be defended. And the second one is then, okay. And then what are the means at which you can do to, to accomplish that? The first one I think is, is a kind of a realization we've all had, hopefully, in, in one capacity or another as we come from childhood to adulthood, right? You know, in your childhood, things just kind of happened, you know? You show up to school and the, the lesson plan was just done, right? You just, you just got the lesson. Or maybe at 5.30 o'clock, dinner was just served. And at some point, you realize in your life, oh, like there's effort that goes into preparing a very orderly dinner or a very orderly lesson plan or a wonderful activity if it's on the PE plate or whatever, right? Playing a baseball game, you realize, oh, there's a coach. And that guy doesn't have the necessarily the same experience you have as the baseball player. So the first one is you have to realize that freedom and liberty and all those sorts of things, right? Morality needs to be defended. And the natural course of things is for it to degrade. It's unattended, dinners don't get made on time, teams don't play well, families don't function, education falls apart. Like there has to be a, like a sort of constant, constantly in politics, they use this language, but a constant blood to sort of, you know, grease the wheel, so to, so to speak. There's going to have to be a constant effort that just needs to be cranked through the system to keep it functioning. But the thing is, how do you do that? And I think I, I couldn't remember who I read this from. I want to say it was uh, Klaus Fisch. Um, he wrote 
uh, a book. He was one of Napoleon's generals, I think. Might be, might be the wrong guy. He says something to the effect that um, the, the, uh, the terms of war dictate the terms of peace, something like that. And I think that's what we need to realize is that things can be unfair, but how you fight the war is going to, the, going to determine what kind of peace you're going to have. And when you storm the capital, when you BLM, when you're burning cities down, mm-hmm. your peace is not going to somehow not resemble that. If you want peace through burning cities, you're going to have to continue burning cities for whatever reason. That's just how it, ha- how it tends to work out. Um, when France humiliates Germany, right, through their peace treaty and how they conduct it, I mean, you, we can have some d- debate on that. Then Hitler does the same thing, takes over France, says, we're signing this treaty in the same car that we, there is some sort of human vengeance that is just kind of packed into the situation, right or wrong, tends, tends to fare that way. And so I think the question is, okay, then how do, you, how do you do this in a practical level? And I think what people don't like to hear is um, go back to the conversation you've had with your enemies, you know, or people who don't agree with you. The first conversation is always going to be hard. No one's been heard. No one's had the conversations. People are going to say things they're not going to, supposed to be saying. But you have to stay kind of engaged in that conversation. You, the constant defense, right? You're going to have to constantly be talking to that guy who's far left. Or that, or extremely far right, when you're like, okay, that's that's not necessarily how justice works. That's not necessarily how, you know, peace works. And you, but you have to stay engaged. And this, I was talking to a friend about this. He said, I think he said, I think people, um, just either compromise, or they just compromise their position. So what they need to do is just find people that that have the same values. I said, no, no, those are both the wrongs. Compromising your values just kills the values there in the water. Mm-hmm. The other side isolates you from any progress you just kind of say the same sort of things what you need to do is engage with someone of different values and stay resilient in those values and to kind of tag it back into chesterton you know uh, he talks about and, I, and I, I said this to him as well as you know he makes this interesting argument same with all this huxley not a christian not just a christian perspective he says um the person in the small community has a larger life than the person in large communities essentially because the person in large community picks his friends and they all just resemble the same but in a small community to date chester a little bit you got to be friends with the milkman if you want milk like well you're just not getting milk you have to realize like just don't break friendships off don't break people you disagree with off you got to engage with them and have those heated fights that, as I told this friend, keep you up at night thinking, wow, how, how hard is this fight going to go? Is this going to keep me from living a peaceful life? Probably, but you got to get into that mindset again. Yeah, uh, while we are aiming for that peaceful uh, place to be together, you know, uh, there's also this aspect, and this is where we need discernment. And as Christians, we should be discerning when, uh, when there's a time, because the ideal time would be when you have a friend and you keep your friendship as well. That would be an ideal place to be. But there comes a time when you have to choose between your friendship and your friend. And I think that is a, a Christian call, especially in this culture, where we do what we do out of love, but love does not side with lies and hate. Um, love sides with love in, 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 in this, that we are prepared uh, to keep our friendship aside momentarily or for forever i don't know for the sake of the friend uh, um, that's that that's a christian perspective but the ideal as i said would be to have the friend and the friendship together and that's what we should aim for right uh, it's not that we are all, always aiming to to actually save the friend and not the friendship no we we must be aiming for both 
but they both are not guaranteed together. Well, and, you know, to kind of take this to the level of the church as a whole, not, you know, with individuals uh, trying, maintaining those friendships in spite of the disagreements and working hard to have difficult conversations. Um, you know, at the, at the, and I'm going to butcher this, but I think it was in Kaler's book, A Secular Age. If not, it was in Alistair McIntyre's book. Um, Isn't it a book that has everything in it? Yeah, that's why I, I that's why I'm struggling. Like, was this in Taylor? It probably was because everything else is. But if it wasn't in him, I think it was one of McIntyre's books that I read recently, where he talks about the you know the constant battle of the church, not giving in too much to, to the culture. Uh, especially in its use of language and its accommodation, its accommodation, right, to the culture, lest it just vanish into the culture. But then also not being so weird and bizarre and off-putting off that it's, it's totally irrelevant to the culture as well, right? So the church also has to be in this tension of being relevant but not too accommodating to the point of where it's not really the church anymore, you know, and, and we're certainly feeling that I think that's that tension today. Right. Um, so anyways, uh, well, uh, gentlemen, one of the, uh, issues that we will address, um, where there's a lot of tension and we'll keep doing deep dives on this because again, it was, um, I think, sort of the main sort of philosophy of the day that that's out there that sort of drove us to put this team together uh, is uh, critical race theory uh, and the social justice movements that we have seen it sort of spawn, uh, especially in the last four or five years. And, uh, and the church's continued engagement with that as we um, see it not just explode in culture, but also uh, really get into the church. So, um on that note uh let's open it up any final words on uh equal justice anything else uh that we should put on the table uh right now yeah um this is what i would add um and i i'm borrowing this from um david bentley hart and let me also say that i don't agree with everything that he says or <laughs> not a universalist <laughs> i'm not a universalist specifically speaking i guess by the way i know the book that you look i it's it's a huge book i can't remember the guy's name i think it's mccloyd uh but i'll get it to you <laughs> okay. good uh so so he he does point out this though uh which i think is very much possible uh, I think I, I would love to see the whole burning bush effect on our culture where God pervades all of the creation and without consuming it. Uh, and and I, I want to see God's kingdom come and his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And as Christians, we need to be marching forward with this confidence that we, our confidence rests on the promise of Christ, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And we must fight with that confidence. And gates are not the ones attacking us. We are the ones called to attack the gates. And I think in our culture today, uh, we need to take a stand and fight well and also finish well. And that's the hope. And I'm so grateful for a lot of people who are reaching out to us 
um, both in the academia, also in the church and individually, thanking us for the ministry that we are doing. And I want to thank them for, for the support that they're giving us on social media and other ways. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'll, I'll uh, make one final reference to a historical figure that I'd like everybody to know about. I uh, did um, pen an article be coming out in a um, Touchstone magazine in the March-April edition on uh, somebody by the name of Franz Jägerstetter. So I would uh, recommend to everybody to watch Terrence Malick's most recent film uh, called A Hidden Life. Um, whether or not you like Terrence Malick's style is not so important, but, um, you know, there's a way to fight, um, honorably. There's a way to fight as a, a true Christian, as a true saint. And I would, uh, reference someone like Jägerstetter who, uh, went to his death, um, actually executed by the Nazis, um, for his refusal to sign the Hitler oath, which many did, uh, many, who beyond that, maybe they didn't do too many terrible things, but they were uh, willing to sign the oath of the National Socialist Party and a pledge to Adolf Hitler. Um, and um, he refused and he refused passively and got brought up to Berlin and executed for his refusal. So that's just something for everybody to, I would recommend watching that movie, it's really good. And taking that as an example, of how to fight as a Christian soldier. So, all right, gentlemen, thank you so much. And I look forward to our next topic. Have a good night.